Welcome to the first episode of the Two Heads podcast with me, Lorna Hackett and Michael Mansfield QC. Now this first episode is divided into two parts and it's called the Global Citizen Paradox, where we discuss what does it mean to be a citizen in 2022? How do we reduce inequalities and discrimination? And what does making a real difference mean if you're just one person? We really hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. My name's Lorna Hackett. I'm Head of Legal Practice at Hackett and Dabbs LLP. I'm a barrister and I'm very happy to be here with... Michael Mansfield, who is also a barrister and has been for rather a long time, not quite prehistoric, but nearly. Um, So I've been in practice for 50 years and uh, I've been to a lot of different places, a lot of different cases, which people may have read about or not, but uh, I suppose the ones that come to mind relate to miscarriages of justice in the 1980s, the Lawrence Inquiry, and since then uh, I'm currently involved in the Grenfell Inquiry. And so perhaps we should explain why we're here. (laughs) There's too much media culture, which is a soundbite. In other words, you can't say it in two sentences, it's not worth saying. And so what happens is you get a very superficial analysis of everything. And I think it's unfair. People are much more sensible than that. Yes. uh, News nowadays appears to be a veneer. And what we want to do is try to think more, well, in depth. I think people have been, um, over the pandemic particularly, which we're still in, um, people have become isolated. That was already happening through Silicon Valley. People were getting locked into a screen. I mean, I have an obsession with screen culture. I don't like the fact that everything, mobile phones, televisions, everything is through a screen. You even have people sitting next to each other on the tube talking to each other through their mobile phones. I feel that, you know, the, the screen has been coming between people and during COVID, still going on, as I say, uh, I think there is an isolation that creeps in, serious isolation, mental isolation, and you wonder when you're coming out the other end, and when you do come out the other end, things are a little different. And, of course, remote working and so on. I don't know how whether you felt the same kind of isolation. Well, certainly, uh, and I, I know there haven't been... that. Well, increasingly there are now, but uh, in terms of big events, and you watch people in crowds, and... Are they really enjoying what's happening or are they just looking at what's happening in person through their mobile phone because everybody's recording it now? So is that enjoying the moment or is it actually just recording for a future reference or to be able to show their friends? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but probably, because I don't do that, so I don't know. And I've I've been lucky enough to have good cameras over the years and the the idea that you see... So I've given up taking photographs even on the mobile phone. Because I'm thinking, no, the moment is here now. I don't want to spend my time looking at you through a camera to, 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 to sort of, in a way, concretise it on a, on a bit of plastic. Well, not anymore, but uh, digitally in my phone. So, and I, and I think there's, um, there is this ongoing 
I think it's a sort of uh, an environment in which people are feeling, in a sense, not only cut off but disempowered because they're at home and isolated. And we're living, I, I remember as a book, well, we've talked about this, I know, once before, but this dates me, I'm afraid, again. But Marshall McLuhan wrote a series of books some long time ago, uh, and he, he coined the phrase the global village. This is in the 1970s, the global village. And this is when computers were sort of coming in. And he, he thought that this was a problem, and he was right. Because, of course, you know, there was going to be a situation in which we connected throughout. There's a great joy in connecting throughout the world, but it's, the connection is done from an isolated position. So then you feel you have a sense of power in as much as I can reach out to you wherever you are, but at the same time, that enables governments, it enables authorities to keep a beady eye on what you're up to. Um, and so this relationship between the individual and authority and the state is being eroded by the very thing that everybody's desperate to have, which is, you know, their bit of hardware which allows them to connect, which is great, but it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, so in some ways we are more connected than we've ever been, uh, but we are also more isolated than we've ever been. And I suppose... Uh, while there's so much polarity and so much discourse about our differences, our similarities as human beings far outweigh our differences, don't they? Well, I think, uh, yes, the similarities do. And I think it's being able to perceive the similarities, to be compassionate about the similarities. And I think, you know, the whole environmental movement, which is extremely important, especially amongst the younger generation, because they're connecting with each other and they're connecting with, you know, the planet where we, where we live. And I, and I think it was interesting, well, I thought it was interesting anyway, is, is that I've always favoured, you know, getting out on the street. And if you've got a point you want to make, making it so that others can hear and see you make it, which is why I'm worried about all the protest legislation that's going on at the moment. You want people out there, so you get the message and you have a collectivity and you feel a solidarity. All words that are going a bit out of vogue, really, but I think they're important for the, for the future because they empower people. They, people feel that they can make a difference. And, and, and the thing that happened during you know, COP26 was not what went on inside the halls of power, as it were, because they didn't match up with the real needs of restricting global warming and all the rest of it. Whereas the, the young ones out on the street, and a lot of other ones as well, were saying, come on, you've got to get on with it now, not, not 20 years down the road. <clears throat> it's got to happen now. There are countries in the world like Bangladesh who are just sinking underwater as we speak. So I think that, you know, one and the same time, the connection is important because you can now see almost instantly instantly what's happening in another part of the world but then you've got to translate that into some kind of action yeah so i think it, the problem we're trying to sort of think through is an age in which we've we've got the global village and we're dealing with the villagers people you know on the street who i i have a sort of vision 
always. I, I, maybe because of Grenfell, it may not be. It may be for other reasons. You know, the constraints for the vast bulk of people, where they're they're living in conditions which are sometimes getting worse because the pandemic has has discriminated in a way because those throughout the whole world who are in an impoverished situation, uh, either nationally because they don't have the resources. And in some cases, there's, you know, I, I cite Bangladesh because there's a report recently on it, where there's no run, you know, they're living in conditions with no running water, no clean water, no electricity, and they're living on tiny shreds of land that are left. And then, you know, that, that's a situation that's replicated throughout the world. It may be different situations. It may be a block of flats in which people are worrying about where the food's going to come from tomorrow. So in that situation, that global village has been created. So we all know what the problems are, as they did in COP26. Is what it, How are you going to provide for those people, providing economically for those bulk of the, of the world? They want to make a contribution, but they can't because they're so constrained by the daily life that that's the difficulty. So, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, really. well, it, exactly. So how do you get past immediate need? And uh, I suppose alongside that, immediate fear, which is crippling, isn't it? Well, I think, yes, it is crippling. And, and you know, somebody listening might say, well, it's all very well, you sitting in an armchair talking about all this. You know, the fact is, what am I going to do? And what I try to do um, in, in all the various situations where as a lawyer I've come across that situation so many times but so many times I've learnt the lesson from other people who said that's how we started off we thought as an individual we, that we wouldn't make a difference and, and the examples that come to mind straight away is, is sort of the Birmingham Six locked up for so long, but actually fought, fought and fought. The Bloody Sunday families who fought, fought, fought to get a, an inquiry. And, and, and on it goes, Lawrence's and, and, and the Hillsborough families and now the Grenfell family. And they all have one thing in common. Main thing being, we want the truth to be told, first of all. Secondly, we want accountability. And, you know, we want government's to respond and connect and, and, and bring forth some kind of justice. And so I think that's what we've been trying to translate. In other words, we want that to happen and we want to try and facilitate that. So, it's to, so the examples I give is that even though people may have been locked up for a long time, physically or mentally, at the end of the day, you know, everyone has an ability if they can find where it is in themselves to actually come out and do something. And once they stand together, then that things do happen in that way. Yeah, so I think what you can extrapolate from all of this is that, one, the citizen has a role, and whoever you are, however you feel impoverished or disempowered, you're not, actually. You can make a difference. Not necessarily on your own. It, has to, it requires you connecting with other people who are in a similar position, who join together, and then you provide one voice. It's not going to happen overnight. You have to persist. You have to have patience. You have to have stamina. And you have to have courage. All those things. That's asking a lot of people who may have already been victims and been through 
hell to, to get to where they are. But what has happened in each of these cases is they have succeeded in getting the authorities and society as a whole to re-examine what happened, let's say, on Bloody Sunday, that the people who were shot dead weren't terrorists at all. So that's just one example. In Lawrence's case, that uh, the, the, their young son who was murdered uh, was a result of a racist attack. And, of course, that, that was re-examining all sorts of assumptions. So they've worked hard on behalf of the community as a whole to make a difference. And, so, and I think one of the main examples I, I, I wanted to, to bring up is truth and reconciliation as a, as a concept. Uh, and that ar- arises in the context of Bloody Sunday, but also in the context of South Africa, because um, Archie, as he was called, Archbishop Tutu, died very recently, and I had the privilege at one time when I was in South Africa doing um, a tribunal, uh, I got to meet him and I think he's a remarkable individual for empowering people with their own spirituality. I'd just like to take a moment now to mention our amazing sponsors, Clio. As I'm the head of legal practice at a law firm, I'm always looking for ways to become more efficient, to save time on administrative tasks and to keep track of client contact and matter management. And I have to say, Clio allows me to do all of this and so much more. At Hackett & Dabs, we've been using Clio for about the last 18 months and it has been absolutely brilliant. Importantly, it allows me to free up my valuable time to devote more to my clients and to the matters that I am so passionate about, like social justice. Clio offers really great customer service, flexible contracts and a free trial so you can try out their software before you buy. They're also really nice people who are totally committed to achieving access to justice for all in society, including the most vulnerable. In short, I would recommend Clio to any lawyer or law firm. To see for yourself why I'm so pleased with them, visit www.clio.com forward slash UK forward slash two heads. That's www.clio.com forward slash UK forward slash two heads. And now back to the show. So what, um, for anybody that doesn't know, what is a truth and reconciliation tribunal? Well, it's remarkable how many of these there have been because people don't really know them. But over the last 50 years, there have been... 50 different countries who've decided to employ one way or another. They can be governmental funded or they can be non-governmental funded, so the community do it. The object being to bring about an inquiry into the truth of something that's happened or is still happening, so it can be either historic or current. So people want to know, so, so what went wrong, for example, in a particular set of circumstances? And who was responsible? And once they establish that part of it, the next part of it is obviously accountability in relation to that. Now, there are different ways of bringing about accountability. You can have, you know, what you and I know as uh, criminal cases and prosecutions and all that. Or if you have a different kind of vision and a different kind of justice, you say, this is, this is the difficult bit. You say, well, once we've established the truth of what happened and who did it. The next question is, what are you going to do about the people who did it? 
So one view, one version is to say, well, provided they admit it, a big proviso, they have to admit it, then they have to, as it were, admit it publicly, and you bring the two sides, if you like, the perpetrator and those who've been the victim of the perpetrator, together in a room just like this, sitting as close as this. Big step for the perpetrator. One thing to admit it and run away, that's, that's difficult enough, but to actually come face to face, as we are, with somebody who has caused your family and your loved ones uh, mutilation, death in terrible circumstances, as the sort of thing, think the worst, and it's happened to your family. And so the pressure's on the perpetrator not to, as it were, betray, uh, if you like, the class, the government and all the rest of it by admitting anything on the one hand. And on the other hand, for the person who is the victim, there would be all their friends saying, you can't allow this to happen, he's getting away with it, if, or she, whoever it is. So it, 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 it presents an enormously difficult moral question. But when it happens, and it did in South Africa, extremely under the tutelage of uh, Archbishop Tutu, he did bring the two sides together. And there's a, there's a wonderful film which I saw in, in Ireland while I was doing the Bloody Sunday Inquiry. And um, I expect you know the hard day's journey. Well, this is a hard night's journey into day. So they reversed the title in order to show people that you, you live in the dark, you've been in the dark, apartheid, so on. But they came into the light with this process of truth and reconciliation. Now, it doesn't fit everywhere, but I think it's intended to not only get to the truth, but overcome, overcome division. And at the moment, you've got a division, huge division in the United States. You've got a division in the United Kingdom it's getting bigger as a chasm growing between those who care and those who don't, those who have and those who don't. It's, it's almost as simple as that. I suppose on a very small level, um, domestically, I've, I've worked with people who have been involved in uh, restorative justice in prison, so represented people in prison who have met with their victims' families. Um, and then they, over, so very similar to this, uh, table in between them to talk about the crime, to admit it, to explain why. And that, on a very small level, is very powerful, just with those two, two parties. And, of course, it enables the offender to look their victims in the eye and say, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, and that, yes, this is a person who's in prison, but it's still very powerful. Because then, while there may never be full uh, understanding, there, may, there will always be regret it enables people to, to, to have at least some knowledge of what was going on in the situation. And, of course, from that can come compassion on both sides. Well, I, yes, and I, I think... I, I know you said it before, and you're right. You know, that Compassion is what is missing. What is missing at the moment was missing in government during the pandemic, especially at the beginning. And it's all very well for certain people to now stand up and say, well, I'm very sorry for what I don't know, or... You know, that what's been missing throughout has been that element. And I, there's a scene in the film. There's more than one film, actually, because what they did, they filmed the commission as a whole, which lasted three or four years. Uh, there's a particular scene, it stuck in my memory, and I, 
I can see it now as I begin to think about it. A, a woman had, lo had lost her son while he'd been killed by the security forces in South Africa during the time of apartheid. So they found the perpetrator who'd admitted it. They found the mother. And then comes the moment when they meet for the first time. So what they did is they put the mother outside one side of a, a, an area which was being filmed with a camera. And they got permission from both that they were going to film it. And they got the member of the security services uh, on, on the other one. So the room was empty. And then they, they, they walked away and said, it's over to you now. Take your time. And you, you're thinking, oh my, what's going to happen here? You, first you're in the shoes of the mother, then you're in the shoes of, of, of the soldier, essentially, essentially. That's what he was. And what was interesting was, you know, you could see them, because you felt they were filmed before they opened the door to go into the room where they were, knew they were going to meet the other person. So this, this was the moment, uh, l'instant de vérité, as they say in French, the moment of truth. And then they filmed from inside, and you saw the door slowly opening, and you could see somebody, and of course they had their supporters on their side trying to persuade the person not to do this. And then you saw them walk towards each other. And you, and you thought, what are they thinking about each other? And of course, all, all the supporters had to be out of it. They didn't come into the room. So, so it's the room just with the two. And I thought it was simply heartbreaking, but uh, a spiritual moment in which I found it was, it was truly uplifting because they got right up to each other. They clearly weren't quite sure what they should do, but then they did it. They didn't say anything. Just put their arms around each other. And they stayed like that. And you could see they couldn't really let go because this was a moment, this was the truth for them, that somehow or another the oppression of apartheid drained out of their bodies onto the floor and, I, and in the cinema where I was watching it. And I just thought, wow, that's, you know, something I'd like to have a hand in that somewhere along the line. And I did to Mo Molem, I did when she was um, part of the Labour government, suggests that that would be suitable. And Archbishop Tutu went to the north of Ireland to do it. And he tried, but he, he, he couldn't, well, he didn't come from the north of Ireland. It needed somebody from there who could rise up and lead into this terribly difficult situation. A peace process uh, had a wonderful role to play in all that. But, of course, on the ground level, you've still got a lot of bitterness right to this day. And that's why at the commemoration, people were talking about, finally talking about truth and reconciliation because, you know, the wall's still there in Belfast. Yeah. So how do... We've talked a little bit about empowerment. How do we, how do we get people to be empowered to find truth and to find, well, to be empowered to find truth and w with compassion? Well, I think we have to talk about it a lot and we have to make sure that when we're talking about it, it doesn't sound distant. Yes. It's something that people feel it's tangible, it's just obtainable by them. And I think that is possible. One, by 
examples I've just given of people who've done it. But I think in each case, what I've discovered, uh, this is purely empirical, through experience of all this, um, is the way in which, uh, let's take the Lawrence family as an example, that they have gone to other situations. They went to the north of Ireland and spoke to the Bloody Sunday families because the Bloody Sunday inquiry came after the Lawrence inquiry. And then the families in the north of Ireland went across to Yorkshire to speak to the Hillsborough families. And so there's this chain, if you like, a network of support that I think people, once they get in a room and they see that a whole load of people talking the same language, and, and I think over, well, I've been at it, as I said, 50 years odd. I think the things that intrigued me over that time is things have changed. When I first started, um, not in a shoebox, but when I first started, the idea of campaigning, the am idea of families getting together, unheard of. There was a deference to authority. There was a deference to the court system, you know, that they knew what they were doing and you, would, you were just a little pawn, as it were, or cog in the wheel, really. That's changed, and I think people have suddenly realised they have a voice, they can use it, and they can make a difference, even though, you know, they're up against it. Probably when they are up against it, that's when it matters most. And if they can get support from other... So I'm not sure how far it answers the question, because... You know, you don't. Uh, hopefully, you don't have to have a disaster before you pe get people together. You you just hope that there will be a form of community, and I think that's one of the things that the global village does at one and the same time. It creates it, but destroys it. Is is that you can live in your tower block and really not know anybody. Um, on the other hand, you can live in a tower block where, where there is a community, in it, like Grenfell, where they all knew each other. So it's. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not anti-political, but I have to say that the political class over the last 20 years has not exactly done us proud. You, you mentioned you don't have to have a disaster, but I can name you two that unite us all. The COVID pandemic, which we're still in, and of course the climate emergency. So are they two disasters that should be uh, really uniting us as a, as a planet? I think it should be. Yeah, you're right, it should be. And I think in large measure it, it does. People are interested and sympathetic to the exigencies of life facing everybody wherever they are because they can identify, so you're right. <coughs> they can identify with that. But I think here, here's the interesting one. Well, I think it's interesting is that you know, here we are going on about vaccines. That's, you know, all right, that's a, it, it's, it's not a remedy, but it, it helps reduce the risks and so on. However, you know, here we are talking about the fourth booster or something, I don't know, where we're up to, well, second booster. Yet there are parts of the world that haven't even had one. So if we're talking about a global village, we have a global responsibility, and therefore... We should be saying to our government, thank you very much that, you know, you're, you're accumulating vaccines for us through the universities and all the rest of who developed them. But actually, how about 
sending some, which is what uh, the World Health Organization is saying. Come on. You know, the developed world, if that's the word for it, have got to look at the undeveloped world because, you know, what they were saying at one time, you know, about the pandemic, if it's anywhere, it's everywhere. So if any part of the world doesn't get get vaccinated, that comes back to us in the end, literally comes back to us. So it seems to me it is, one has to be encouraged to think beyond the, the limits of, the screen that you're watching, although it's telling you what's happened, you, you've got to yourself translate that into some form of action. And I think people do. They give generously, you know, when they have the chance to do it, they do. Yeah, I mean, you talk about vaccine nationalism. I suppose um, we talk about nationalism, not just in terms of vaccines, but globally. I mean, we are all part of this one planet and... Each yes, you're right. Each country should be uh, that if it has the resources, sharing them with the rest of the world. It's we we can't think about borders. We can't think about you know w- with global emergencies, which and I've just named sort of two. You can't yeah. think you can't think about walls and borders and and nationalities, can you? No. Well, I mean, I don't. You know, we don't think about it like that. But I expect. But the problem is, a lot of people do. I mean if you like, that there are political movements within the United Kingdom, within the United States of America, and a lot of other places in the world as well. We have a, a face-to-face situation in which people are protecting, and it's about nationalism, it's about territory. And so here we are, back in sort of gunboat diplomacy situations, which the English government also indulges in. You know, if there's an immigrant coming across, send the gunboats out. We'll have the Royal Navy intercept, you know. So we still don't have the global mentality. We do at a certain level. I think a lot of ordinary people do think like that. But it's very rare to get the political level to start thinking. And, of course, that was the idea originally behind the League of Nations and then the United Nations was to think globally. But what's happened? You've got a divided United Nations because the Security Council that has the power, if you like, to implement change is eternally divided between five major nations who tend to disagree with each other. So one side always uses the veto. Meanwhile, underneath that, you've got the General Assembly where you've got the rest of the world discussing regularly Serious problems, passing resolution after resolution for change, but nothing happens because the Security Council is warped, in my view. And until it gets changed, um, we're not going to make too much progress there. 